Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 69 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. What a wet week we're having, and guess which idiot decided it would be a good idea to move nukes to the mating apiary in preparation for queen rearing. Stay tuned for my queen rearing update, getting stuck in the mud, and other beekeeping disasters. And sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Utterly drenched, that was me on Wednesday evening. To be honest, that was also me on Tuesday evening as well. This week has been a crazy busy week, mainly due to my own procrastination, it has to be said. I've been meaning to set up the queen rearing apiary for some time, but just not got round to it. And with the season racing away from me, I just had to get out this week and get it sorted. The first task was to set up the stands, but let me rewind a little bit and talk you through what I'm setting up. Here in Norfolk, I'm surrounded by beekeepers, and each one of them has a mix of bee types ranging from pure Italian Ligustica, Germanic Carnolians, a few near-native bees, but mostly the good old Norfolk mix. Open-mated, and a collection of genes from around the world, no doubt. Here I am trying to get back to near-native, or perhaps better described as locally adapted, mix of bees. But as you know by now, I have a preference for the darker bee, so I'm trying to be ruthless this year and move on any stripy or light-coloured queens. Some of them have performed quite well, but my bees are not yet consistent enough, and I'd love to be able to share them with other beekeepers, but not until I'm sure of what I'm producing. Anyway, in order to attempt to give myself a fighting chance... I'm moving around a dozen colonies containing dark drones into my mating apiary area at the fishing lakes. The plan being to flood the mating site with as many darker drones as possible to try to edge out any light or stripy drones. I'm also adding a few super frames to the brood boxes of these colonies to encourage the girls to build drone comb from the bottom of each frame and produce an excess of drones beyond the more normal levels that you might find in these colonies. Close by to this apiary, I have my mating apiary. It's just a clearing with a load of nuke boxes filled with nucleus colonies ready to take virgin queens when the time comes. Currently, they're all queen right, and I'm balancing colonies for strength by shifting a few frames of brood from one to the other and adding a few frames of foundation here and there where needed. Of course, I'm making sure that they're all healthy colonies before I do any of that moving. Just switching topic for a moment, I had an email from our National Bee Unit yesterday advising that in this cooler, rainy spell, nucleus colonies might be starving. If you've seen any of my nukes, you'd wonder where they got all their stores from. At least two frames of food in each, so I'm not really worried about the starvation issue at all. But different areas around the UK have struggled, so if you have recently made up a nuke or a split, it's worth checking on them. If they're low on food, give them a bag of fondant and they'll be fine, I'm sure. Happy Valley Honey's Appy Pasta is my favourite at the moment and well worth checking out. I'll drop a link in the podcast notes for you. If you want it quickly, give Paul a call and make sure you mention where you heard about it. Paul has supported both my videos and these podcasts and he has some excellent products, so do give him your support if you're at all able. Anyway, back to the queen rearing apiary. I have stands set up to take four nuke boxes. These vary from my own commercial plywood nukes to the BS Honey 2-in-1 nukes. 
It's just what I have available at the moment. The stands are a new addition for me. Remember, I'm fairly useless at woodwork, so they're no work of art. But last week, I visited a fellow commercial beekeeper, Kevin Thorne, who had a large stack of wood and concrete outside his back door. And when I asked him what they were for, he said they were for hive stands and he'd seen them in use by another fellow bee farmer who also happens to be an ex-bee inspector colleague of mine by the name of Sylvia. And I'm pretty certain she may have seen the stands from another fellow ex-bee inspector, Andy. Actually, Andy was the national bee inspector for many years, and I did remember seeing these stands on one of his presentations. So there aren't many things that beekeepers create that haven't already been created and tried out in years past. And I make no claims that these stands are my innovation, but they work superbly, it seems, and they're really easy to create, which is really important for me. You need four times nine inch hollow block concrete blocks. Those are the ones with the two holes in and two lots of 75 mil square 1.8 meter fence posts. You put two blocks at each end, one on top of the other, and lay the fence posts across the top of the concrete blocks. And there you have it, a simple functional hive stand for up to five nukes or two hives. I'm using them with just four nukes spaced evenly apart. I think it will give me a lot more room to inspect and manipulate the frames during those inspections. So I currently have four of these set up in this one apiary, which gives me 16 nuke positions. But quite a number of these nukes are BS Honey 2-in-1 nukes. So I'd guess I maybe have 20 to 24 potential queen mating nukes, which is fine for my purposes. The great thing is I can add more of these stands and immediately increase the mating nuke setup by up to eight three-frame nukes if I use the BS Honey boxes. Again, I'll leave a link in the podcast show notes to their website. Having set up all the stands, the move of the nukes was simple enough really, especially the poly nukes as they have those round disc entrances that you simply dial round to close off the entrance and leave just the ventilation section in place. I always use a simple strap to hold everything together and then just carry the nukes back to the truck. It would have been that simple if it hadn't been raining and boy have we had some rain this week. The long grass was soaked which meant I was soaked from the knees down and the heavy rain meant I was also soaked from my head down to my waist pretty quickly too. It didn't take too long to load up the nukes though and the heater in the truck is pretty good so I warmed up fairly quickly. I did say to myself I'm not doing that again and that promise lasted all of 24 hours as I found myself back out in the rain the next day moving the drone donor colonies in what seemed to be even heavier rain. And that's where things went south fairly quickly. I managed to get four or five hives onto the back of the truck before heading over to the field beans site where I knew I had a couple of really nice colonies with the darkest drones and I really wanted to get those over to the mating sites as well. What I'd forgotten is that the lower field beans site was on a field that the farmer had left fallow but he'd also ploughed and sown some kind of green manure into it. Well the truck made it onto the field and gained about three yards before sinking into some very soft saturated mud. Luckily I have four-wheel drive on the truck so having already engaged it to get up the hill it was a simple task of slipping it into reverse and easing the truck off the field. At least I thought that was all I had to do. What actually happened was the four-wheel drive simply helped all four wheels to dig deeper into the soil. I did remember the old adage though, when you're in a hole, stop digging. And just in time really, because I seem to be making quite a deep hole. 
Now the truck, a Ford Ranger, has two different four-wheel drive settings, one called high and the other called low. And I have no idea what the technical difference is, but I assume it meant that one gave a lower ratio and would mean I could still rev the engine quite high, but the wheels would stop spinning quite so fast. One of the things to remember is when you're concentrating on reversing out of a hole in a muddy field, is to always make sure that you look behind you to see where it is you're likely to end up if you do get out of the hole. The grass track behind me slopes away quite quickly down into a stream with banks about four feet high, and wet grass can be very slippery indeed. I'm glad to report it wasn't a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire on this occasion, and I slid a little sideways before regaining control and reversing to safety. It did cross my mind to have another go at getting up the muddy slope on the field, but common sense prevailed and I decided to leave those hives for another day. As Eeyore would say, oh well, every silver lining has a cloud. Today I'm nicely dried out and looking forward to getting back out onto the bees, but it's raining again. The next task is to move the Queen Mother colony, that's the one that will be the donor colony, and also a couple of colonies for the cell builder, and I'm almost there, which is just as well because we're fast approaching the middle of June. Where on earth has this month gone? I'll be using the cloakboard method once again, and I think the first batch will be grafting into the Jay-Z Beezy cups. It's something I can do in one visit, and I won't need to set up the Nico system in advance, but I'll also set that Nico cage up and give it a try too in the coming weeks. At the start of the podcast, I mentioned other beekeeping disasters. I would say it's been a disastrous week, but simple little things can catch you out and it would be easy to fall into a feeling of pessimism. Better to simply put it down to beekeeping experience. Clean up and move on. I did have some help yesterday when moving the full-size hives and we plugged up the entrances with foam prior to moving them. Some of the colonies are so big at the moment we actually had to remove the entrance blocks recently and that can be a bit of a pain when you want to put them back in to move bees. It's easier just to use a full width strip of foam and block up the entrance completely. It's quicker and less disruptive for the bees. That is, unless you carry the hive into an apiary through a narrow walkway lined with nettles and brambles and you forget that you have foam in place, the brambles catch the foam and automatically remove it from the entrance for you. Remember I said we used the full width foam because it was a very big colony full of bees? Well, all I can say is lucky we had our bee suits on. I've never put a hive down and pulled up my hood quite so quickly. Unfortunately, Steph, who was helping, wasn't quite so quick. And if you've ever had honeybees get stuck in your hair and make that rather loud buzzing sound as they try to crawl deeper towards your head, you'll know what poor Steph was experiencing. I'm glad to say no stings were delivered and we were able to position the hive without further incident. Always good to be able to laugh at these things after the event, especially if you're not the one in jeopardy. It all calmed down after that and I was able to get home in time to put the last buckets of honey into the settling tank ready for bottling a fresh batch this morning. That was around 10pm last night, another long beekeeping day, but then it is that time of the year so I have no complaints about that. If you've been listening to my previous podcasts, you'll remember I have a Carl Fritz 100 kilo creamer and a Swenty bottling machine in my honey room, new purchases that I've only really just got to grips with. At last, I have a setup that means I don't have to sit in front of a 25 kilo stainless steel settling tank 
and hand crank the tap each time to fill each jar manually. I use jars that hold 350 grams of honey and invariably I always used to fill them to about 350 grams but sometimes 355 grams, sometimes 360 grams and sometimes, when I wasn't paying attention, 380 grams and at that point it makes it really difficult to get the lid on not to mention the extra honey that you're giving away. Anyway, the Swenty machine calibrates precisely and pumps the honey through with no drips, no leaks and no miscalculations. It's spot on every time and fills at the press of the button. All you have to do is put an empty jar beneath the outlet and press the button. It's simple. The bottling machine also comes with a foot switch so you can have both hands free. I tried that when it first arrived and I was like a drummer with two left feet. I always fancied myself as a drummer and I'm pretty well coordinated. Well, mostly coordinated. I'm not sure my daughters would agree as they've seen me on a dance floor, but that's another story. The simple fact is, moving jars and stomping on a foot pedal just didn't work for me. So I invested in a stand and a micro switch for the bottling machine. It takes away the need to remember to put a jar under the honey outlet before pressing your foot down on the pedal on the floor. Adding the machine to the stand is straightforward, although a little bit heavy. I could have done with some help to lift it in place and to guide the two parts together, but I got there in the end. The nice thing with this piece of kit is it means you can remove the feet from the bottom of the filling machine and free up a little bit of extra space. The micro switch then screws into the front right foot position and there's a little plastic foot plate which acts as a backstop when you push the jar under the filling nozzle. I'll have to record a video to show you exactly how it works, but suffice to say for now, it's a really nice setup. The micro switch pivots around a kind of elbow joint, so you can fix it in just the right position depending on the size of jars you're using, so you can adapt it to a range of different sizes. Once in place and checked, I switched on the machine and ran honey through the pipes to remove any air bubbles. The nice thing about the machine is that it has a pump facility, so you can start and stop it as you want. It normally takes around a kilo of honey to pass through the pump to remove the air and allow the honey to fill into the jars without also incorporating lots of air bubbles. So I'm all set. The machine is switched to 350 grams fill. I push the first jar under the outlet and it pushes the micro switch back and I hear a click. But nothing happens. As I move the jar forward slightly, there's another click and the jar fills. That's a relief. So the micro switch works when you release the switch not when you first push the jar against it. At least I found that out. The thing with machines is they're programmed to do what they're programmed to do. So guess what happens if instead of pulling the jar towards you, you inadvertently push it backwards again and hear a click. So now I'm frozen to the spot, not quite organised enough to have set the box of jars close enough for me to reach the next jar, and I've tripped the first part of the switch which inevitably means when I release the switch, honey is going to flood out of that nozzle. I reach for the jars, and there's the dreaded sound of a very audible click, quickly followed by a muffled whirring sound and the liquid gold flooding all over my hand and onto the counter. I manage to grab the next jar and get it under the nozzle in pretty quick time, and the jar fills to about halfway. But as we all know, honey spreads very quickly, and it's very, very sticky. Just ask Winnie the Pooh. Unfortunately, my 007 reflexes are not what they used to be, and I spent the next 20 minutes cleaning up and setting everything up again. 
I guess it could have been worse, and I could have had the pump set to continuous fill, and then I really would have been in trouble. Steph said to me yesterday, we'll look back at this and laugh one day. Indeed we will. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast, and keep the comments coming. I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping, short and sweet. (laughs) 